0: This is the second Sunday of Advent, and as Mother McNeil said in her sermon last week, it's the it's the beginning of the church year. It's a time when we talk about beginnings. My practice is always to use Advent as an opportunity to talk a little bit about the church year. Episcopalians have a church year. Where did it come from? Uh, why do we have it? Why do we think it's important? So I'm going to say some things to you about that. And then we read today from a book uh, in, uh, in the, what we call the Apocrypha called Baruch. We hardly ever read from Baruch. So I thought I'd preach a little bit about what, why it's in a, a reading in Advent And to say something about Philippians and the promise that uh, Paul speaks of with the Philippian congregation. And finally, the gospel, uh, according to St. Luke, where we meet our old friend, John, don't sing jingle bells to me, the Baptist. (laughs) And see what in the world that may be all about. You know, there's a new series out that's published by Morehouse Publishing, and here's one called Welcome to the Church Year. And it's a book about the Christian year, why we have it, where it came from, and what it means. Uh, we'll put this on our website, on the, uh, w- and you can go to a place where it says readings and things. And I'll put this and a couple of other uh, uh, similar books. Vicki Black is a Deacon, I don't know where she is now. She's been in Massachusetts, Milwaukee, oh, Bethesda, Maryland. So uh, she's written this introductory book uh, for the popular reader. It isn't some abstruse thing about the Christian year. It's, it's helpful. So uh, for those of you who wish to explore more uh, might find that of interest. So here's a little scholarship for what it's worth. Uh, the, there are two cycles in the Christian year in Western Christianity, Lent-Easter-Pentecost and Advent-Christmas-Epiphany. The oldest cycle is the Lent-Easter-Pentecost, and what developed later is the second post in the liturgical celebration of the Church. The Episcopal Church is called a liturgical church, which means it's governed by worship, and we have we have set forms and readings throughout the year that we read. I have to tell you this. As a pastor, I'm so grateful to be in a liturgical church because I wouldn't want to be in one of the faith traditions where I'd have to make it up every Sunday. That wouldn't be my idea of fun. I can tell you that. And it also safeguards. Um, Flights of fancy, not completely, <laughs> but you know, one of the great—this is one of the great figures in liturgical scholarship, the study of the history of Christian worship—is a guy named Hippolytus, and Hippolytus was a. Um, this phone is going off. I think. Uh, Hippolytus was. Um, a, a, uh, actually a pope, briefly, in Rome in the third century AD. And he was imprisoned later, and uh, it's a long story. But if he were alive today, he probably would be a member of the 1928 Prayer Book Society, because he believed that the church was moving in a direction that he didn't like, namely out of Greek and into Latin in Rome. And there were some other things in the liturgy that were changing that he didn't like. So he wrote something called the Apostolic Tradition, where he wrote down the liturgy as he remembered it as a boy. So he wrote this in about 215 AD, and he's talking about stuff that was going on in 190, 185, 190. So it's pretty early in in, uh, Roman Western liturgy about what it is we did. And the reason I'm using this example is that when it comes to the uh, prayer of consecration, the canon of the Mass, you know, uh, that we say, uh, we give thanks to you, O God, for the goodness and love which you have made known to us, you know, Eucharist, for example. Uh, Hippolytus said, at this point, the bishop or presbyter uh, makes up their own words or uses these and for us as Episcopalian, these is Eucharistic prayer A in Rite 2 that's Hippolytus it's a paraphrase of Hippolytus but you can see why after over a time uh, things began to be such that they said here's what you do because when you start making stuff up wow and I have been at places where they've made it up and thought they were really onto something don't you believe it for a minute all right, Advent is a season of hopefulness. It's a season of expectation. In the tradition, it was uh, originally in northern Europe, the parts of Europe where we our tradition comes from, six weeks long, and it was just like Lent. So it started on November 11th, St. Martin of Tours, the Feast of St. Martin of Tours, and it was often called St. Martin's Lent, and it went for six weeks. In the Mediterranean countries... It was four weeks, and not so (laughs) heavy-duty. So by the time of Charlemagne and his trusty companion, Alcuin of York, Alcuin was a deacon who ran his school. You know where we get these words, when children or young boys had to sing the liturgy, in these monastic churches and cathedral churches. They sang it in Latin. You had to have a school, a choir school, for these kids to learn Latin. And they called it a grammar school. And that's where we get it, right? Okay. So Alcuin says, let's let's make these practices a little bit more consistent throughout the Western Christian world Charlemagne was the Holy Roman Emperor, he was seven feet tall, so what he said went, right? So he said, make it so, and so we take Advent and whack two weeks off of it, make it four weeks long, a little less penitential, but not quite, and there you have the season of Advent as a preparatory season for Christmas, So that's how we get to this season. The color that we use for Advent at St. Luke's is the old northern European color for Lent in the Middle Ages, blue. It wasn't just England, not just the serum use. It was the use in what we now call Belgium and Holland and France and parts of Germany. The northern uh, Gallican use was blue. And as you move down into the Mediterranean again, it was violet. So that's why if you go to other churches, you go to the Roman church, you'll see the, 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 the vestments as being violet in color. So they're interchangeable for Lent uh, and um, for Advent, although we use a different color in, in Lent, and I'll get, get to that another time. So Advent is a season of new beginnings, thinking about the coming of Christ, the celebration of the birth of the infant Jesus, but also it has been used spiritually in the church's life as a time of reconversion, a time of thinking about how we get back on track. It also is coincidentally the time when our new year will begin not too, in the not-too-distant future, and so thinking about <coughs> New Year's resolutions and all of those kinds of things are appropriate for how we think about the season of Advent. So it's a great time. I like it. Uh, also because the hymns are some of the best. We sing some of the really good uh, hymns in the hymnal. So let's talk about Baruch, not Bernard Baruch, uh, who was asked, how do you make money in the stock market? And he said, buy low and sell high. That's always good advice, isn't it? Baron von Rothschild was asked, how come he made so much money in the stock market? And he said, I always sold too soon. Baruch, in the tradition, is Jeremiah's secretary, his amanuensis. He wrote down the stuff. Thus says the Lord, you know. Baruch was writing it down. This book appears in a group of biblical books called the Apocrypha in our tradition. Uh, In the Roman. Episcopalians, Roman Catholics, and Eastern Orthodox Christians read these books. In Protestant canons, they're not included. So Anglicans, heavily influenced by the Protestant Reformation, have retained reading these books, but they draw no doctrinal conclusions from them. So in the 39 articles, they say the apocryphal books may be read for edification but not for doctrine. <laughs> and that gets out those people who have trouble praying for the dead because there's all there's support in all these things for, for stuff like that. So Baruch is talking about something that's very important and will be a theme of Advent and a theme that people begin to understand and appropriate for their own um, personal history about the church's year and about how they fit in it. Because Baruch... Are we okay? Okay, good. Uh, Baruch is talking about something called, about what we would call um, exile and return. This was written during the Babylonian captivity. So, you know, one of the things the people who believed that Jesus uh, was Messiah thought was that in him and in his preaching and teaching and mighty works, we see now the completion of God's plan for Israel. And that means that alienated, lost, irredeemable humanity, in their view, the people of Israel, have now come home and receive some affirmation of God's redeeming, reconciling power. By the time we get to the creation of Advent in the Western Church, let's say in the 5th 500s, we begin to see that people start to think about this in a way different, perhaps, than the people of Israel did who were taken off to captivity and then came back from exile. They see this both in historical terms but in internal, spiritual, and personal terms so that you and I can somehow be reconciled with our demons. We can, in communities of faith, understand our role to be engaged with the wider world, to create a society where it is easier for people to be good. We can, in some way, see that there is both a corporate aspect to God's reconciliation and a personal one. And so Baruch is speaking about this idea of return from exile. I don't know about you, but there have been times in my life when I felt alienated and lost and irredeemable. And it is by being steadfast with regard to uh, worshiping and uh, placing myself always before God's grace and love that you begin to move away from that and to be able to move away from uh, a condition of spiritual dryness. So if Advent is a season of you know revivifying your, your faith, Uh, Those are important things to be concerned about. And Baruch Baruch today is is talking about that kind of thing. The reading from Philippians, you know, if the Corinthian church is the church in the New Testament on the bleeding edge of the dysfunctional church movement, (laughs) Philippians is a stellar example of a church that gets it. And that by and large, its constituents uh, have a fairly mature uh, outlook and an understanding, a balance between their internal life together as a community, between the importance of the individual's spiritual journey, between the empowerment that they receive at their baptism in order to be God's people in the world, and their need to reach outside Because the Philippian congregation was one of the ones who was the most faithful in supporting Paul financially and materially and prayerfully in his missions. So he's thanking them for that. And he's using it as an opportunity to talk about how you and I think on a regular basis about cooperating with the divine initiative begun in us at our baptism. And Advent, if it's a season about renewal, a season about new beginning, has something to do with the idea that we remember that we have a role to play in God's plan for the cosmos in big and small ways. Who you are and what you do is very important to God's plan. And Paul is giving thanks to God for a particular community who seems, both in their spiritual, emotional, and mental states, to be able to reflect that back to the world. So that's part of Advent, too. The lectionary in the Episcopal Church, the the readings that are for each Sunday and for the feast days and so on, uh, the the lectionary for Sunday is on a three-year cycle. Cycle A, Cycle B, and Cycle C, and each cycle is characterized by which gospel appears most prominently uh, in the Sunday readings. So we're in year C now, and year C is Luke. So A is Matthew, B is Mark, C is Luke. And throughout all those three cycles, John's Gospel is read at the appropriate times in the liturgical year when what John's point of view about who Jesus is and what it means is a a good corrective to the synoptic picture of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic means to be seen together, and remember I have told you many times that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have similar sources for the most part and, uh, and use stories that are similar. So we hear today from our patron, Luke, and I'm always glad when we read from this cycle because Luke, to me, is very important. Luke believes that history has been transformed by the mighty works of Jesus Christ, and he wrote a two-volume set, The Gospel According to St. Luke and The Book of Acts. And the Gospel according to St. Luke is about the presence of the Holy Spirit of God in the person of Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. And the book of Acts is about the presence of the Holy Spirit or the transfer of the Holy Spirit to the people of God, you and me, as both the uh, beneficiaries and the fiduciaries of the Spirit. And so we continue God's work and we continue this history of salvation. He is considered the historian of the New Testament, although the way we understand history today, uh, it probably wouldn't pass the test, you know, of the accuracy that we are talking about factual history as opposed to a historical understanding of uh, God's purposes in the world or the way uh, way we understand people and movements, it's different. I've mentioned this to you before. Luke is the Shakespeare of the New Testament. His Greek is the best, and it means, of course, that he probably wrote for a Gentile audience and that uh, his, uh, he, the use of his language is very good. I was always glad I didn't have to translate anything out of it in school uh, because it was hard, <laughs> you know, to do Who? So today, we are introduced to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, for Luke, represents the the inauguration of this history of salvation. In one sense, Luke has believed always that all of human history embodies some aspect of God's saving work. And that, in fact, the people of Israel, the people of the covenant, when they saw the eyewitnesses who were present at Jesus' earthly ministry, they said, you know, if we would have consulted our own sacred literature uh, through different eyes, we would have seen present in it his ministry and who he is and what he said. So now John the Baptist comes and he announces the coming of Jesus. And in this announcement, he, in Luke's terms, draws up into himself the whole of the Old Testament prophecy. He embodies in his ministry all that the prophets of Israel had to say about what was important. I read a commentary this week. I had forgotten about this, you know, when it says he was engaged in a baptism Uh, for the forgiveness of sins. And in the Greek text, the word sins could as easily be translated debts. And so as a subversive in the religious system of the time, John was a counterbalance to the religious leadership in Jerusalem at the temple, who were really the stooges of the Pax Romana, You have to understand. Here's another thing you learn from Luke or get reminded of. People always, I hear this is that. Politics and religion were inseparable. There was no separation, right? It's a fairly recent phenomenon. In fact, there are large parts of the world today where politics and religion are not separated. You and I might lament that. Right? based on our Enlightenment views about a lot of this stuff. But in another way, uh, it's important to see because there is a relationship between the two. So it's not possible really to talk about religion and not about politics. Most of us wouldn't like it if, if, if uh, you, you heard a preacher tell you how to vote, right? That's not the thing. That's not what we're talking about. Or taking sides in some aggressive way about matters of social policy. Right? Although it seems to me that the Gospels are clear that the default position for Christian people is uh, to create a kinder and gentler society. And one where it is easier for people to be good. And there is some economic justice and equity abroad in the land. And Luke, in his gospel, says more about those questions than any other gospel writer. So in addition to being a doctor, and so we hear more healing stories than any other gospel, we have more about the issues of economic justice and equity. So John the Baptist, Luke's John the Baptist, is very concerned about these matters and speaks about them in a very clear way. So what he says is his ministry appealed to everyone, high and low. And so those who come out to him to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins have made a decision to repent. And the repentance that is talked about in the New Testament is the turning around of one's life to see it with a new perspective and fresh eyes. And to begin to see that there is a possibility to make some species of amendment of life, and to understand that in that process they uh, see something more deeply about the nature of God at work in the world, and the nature of God at work in their own lives, and a revivification or a new shining of a light on your purpose, You know, Christian people don't believe that we're just here. There's a view, there's a scientific view, particularly those very hostile to to religious religion, that says, you know, the more we look into this, the more we can see that no purpose to the creation at all. It's just here. Well, we don't believe that. We believe there is a purpose and an end, and that you have a purpose and an end not just to glorify God, but to make a difference in the world and to be the best human being that you can be. And Advent begins the season more than any other in the Christmas cycle of the affirmation of our humanity and its goodness. Some people have said, who who, uh, talk about Anglican theology, that our great heresy is the incarnation, because we go overboard about the humanity of Christ and his presence in the world. Archbishop William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury during the war, World War II, said, Christianity is the most materialistic of all of the world's religions. And what he meant by that was is that you and I believe that the world is important and that our humanity is important and that God became a human being. And we saw in him the absolutely highest of our human potentialities. And by virtue of that, we learn something about how we can behave in act two. So this week, think about moving from alienation and lostness and irredeemability to reconciliation, health and wholeness, to how you can put that in your hands in your own relationship and live into the promises of God by being a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love. Uh, Focus on all your strengths, just like Paul did with the Philippian congregation, to tell them what a difference they made in the world. And all of you make a difference, even if sometimes you don't feel you do. And finally, understand that you are part of the history of salvation, that you cooperate with the purposes of God, and you continue the process of understanding what it means to speak about God's kingdom. Amen.